Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Klass. On today's show, folks, we're honored we have back with us Joe Woodard. Ed, how's it going? Going great, Ron. How are you? I'm very good, except for the weather out here. Oh. Other than that, it's not bad. <clears throat> Summer's finally arrived in Texas. It's going to be 90 today. Well, Joe Woodard, I don't know, Ed, is this his fourth or fifth or sixth time? Five. This is five. Five. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Five. Gold jacket. A gold jacket. Yeah. <laughs> wow. He doesn't need an introduction. I mean, he's been on the top accounting list, hundred top 100 for forever. He's CEO of Woodard Events. Everybody knows Scaling New Heights. And he's also the host with Heather Satterley of the Woodard Report podcast. Welcome back, Joe. It's great to be here, Ron, as always. Have a lot of fun with you guys. Yeah, us too. Um, so let me ask you, I don't, I think, I don't know where I heard this. It was on a podcast with you, but you mentioned you had a conversation with my co-author, Paul Dunn, and he I modified, did. And he I did. modified well, actually, your purpose. Yeah, exactly. Well, I called Paul because I had just finished reading the book, Time's Up. Great book, by the way. And I just finished reading Time's Up, and as you know very well, you're the co-author, it's really bifurcated into this sort, sort of inspirational piece, and then you've got the model in the back. And, and Paul Dunn and I um, both are big proponents of vision, but he and I on the applications of vision, I'm a little, little lean a little bit more toward Ed Kless, uh, you know, when it comes to the, the business role in solving sort of larger societal problems, I'm more of a free economy kind of uh, mindset. So he and I were having a lively debate, you know, uh, between those two kinds of models. Uh, but we both agree in altruism. I, I like benevolent profitability. Uh, that's what I like to call it. And uh, But here's the thing. I'm so glad you asked about that because Paul gave me something that I'll cherish for the rest of my life. He said, every vision statement has, should have a um, an implied but known so that. In other words, our vision is to transform business through business advisors. And Paul Dunn said, so that it's great. It's a great way. And that doesn't necessarily mean we'll put it on the website because the, so that can be intensely personal. In my case, it's, mm -hmm. I was the child of business owners and I grew up in um, kind of sharing my parents' attention with my business. They were loving, they were wonderful parents, but it was always that intrusion of the business into the family um, so my so that is that business owners can can have more attention and capacity to give to their families if that's if they're family people or to the other people in their lives um, to increase the quality of life by that. But so that was my big takeaway from my conversation with Paul. It was brilliant. That's great. You know, that's like the the, the car salesman that says, "Well, this is an eight cylinder, so that or which means you can." toe into the mountains you can you know have more power you know you got to always say that so that or which means whatever Paul, paul's a master at that yes and from a sales perspective it the best salesperson figure lets them you know tell you the so that 
you know, they ask them to so that. Right. I like how you said it can be personal because not everybody has to buy into the exact same vision. They can have little branches on the tree, right. That, that shoot out from your main purpose. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, Joe, I'm sorry. I have to do it. Everybody's talking about it, but I'm only asking you this because I know, you know, Doug Slater used to work with him. Uh, We had him on last week. Yeah. I hear he's alive. He's alive. He's back. He's, uh, he's <laughs> yeah. been resurrected. Hey, if, if people that didn't listen to last week, uh, you have to understand that joke is Chat GPT declared him dead. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. So, so he's got <laughs> rightful complaints with it. I totally understand that. <laughs> yes. Uh, but he has concerns around it. Of course, big bad data. And we talked about that, but he's really concerned about the education. What's your take on all this? And I'm not talking about how to use it in accounting firms. I'm talking about societal economic impact. Are you scared of this technology or do you embrace it as an opportunity? No, I, I believe it's, it's, it, I am nervous. I wouldn't say scared. I'm nervous because uh, n- nervous and from an economic disruptive position, can we, can we pivot fast enough so that the people who are authors and the people who are storytellers and the people who are disseminators of news and information can discover a new way to bring the human quality to what the artificial intelligence is going to quickly displace, right? So um, just the other day, I, I asked ChatGPT, uh, tell, you know, write, a, write a short story um, in the Stephen King style um, and, and it just did it. And I was reading it as it was writing it. And it was, it was probably about 60% as good as King, but yeah. How, 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 how long until it's a hundred percent as good as King or some might argue under 10% as good as King. So um, that, that part is exciting to me, but the dehumanizing part of it, when it comes to arts and literature and, and, the, the that aspect of humanity, which can become diminished, not because it's not valuable, but because people mistake what the machine can do for the true expression of soul. Um, and in that mistaken identity between those two things, the people expressing soul are going to be devalued. So that mm-hmm. part bothers me. It I, I'm not I don't disagree with sort of the the people who are who are crying the sky could could fall like Elon Musk. I don't disagree with their position because uh, an intelligence, whether it's uh, artificial or not, has the ability to draw conclusions, has the ability to take actions. And when the machines can draw conclusions, when the machines can take action, and when the machines can improve upon themselves, those are the three aspects of AI that are most exciting and daunting. Uh, there's no telling. We can't even predict what it could be capable of doing. So when you say take actions, what do you mean? I, I mean, I, I mean, computer programs is the Internet of Things. So they can open and close garage doors. They can turn your lights on and off, your security system on and off, your heat on and off. Your car. Your car on and off. I have a Tesla. So, yeah, they can stop my car. They can take over my car, drive my car to where I don't want it to go. Uh, theoretically, right? I'm not saying that right. there aren't security protocols to protect this, but I'm talking about, you know, that the internet of things means that artificial intelligence can control things. So you're worried about, you think about the paperclip scenario, you've heard that, right? You program it to produce paperclips and it 
just does that relentlessly and takes out everything just to make paper clips. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think it's more dangerous than that. I, I think it won't have a singularity of focus. Um, you know, I mean, the iRobot is, is so predictive in nature. These, these classic science fiction uh, authors were prophetic, you know, and there is no set of foolproof laws. As soon as you tell the bots, this series of protect humans and all of its aspects and, with the three laws, if you don't know that, you can just go to Google the three laws of iRobot. Uh, then the, the robots begin to interpret that as well. To really protect humans is to not let them govern themselves because they hurt themselves when they govern themselves. So let me take over. Um, there is no logical box in which you can place an intelligence. We know this from human intelligence. The question is just how much will artificial mimic the human so that it's a matter of time before it breaks the constraints of its box. One way I think about this is, you know, we talk about data a lot. And of course, Doug's got his fears around big, bad data. And I agree that can cause problems. And we talk about knowledge a lot. Um, but both of those data and knowledge are about the past. They say nothing about the future, the future, creativity, innovation, take us by surprise. Otherwise, you know, otherwise we could plan it. We wouldn't need it if you knew what the wheel looked like already. Um, how do you think about, how do you square that, that this thing can only spit back what it, what it has already learned from us in terms of data or knowledge, but it can't come up with any ideas yet. Yeah. Yet. But it doesn't um, have imagination and it doesn't have a soul, but that that's another discussion. Well, soul is another discussion, but what is imagination except the very complex piecing together of various ideas and experiences. So it, it, can have imagination theoretically, you know, and as much as it mimics the human brain and the behaviors of the human brain, but it, but it, it can be incredibly predictive too. Uh, algorithms, the same algorithms we use to, to create financial predictions, um, it will do just so much faster and in a much more sophisticated way. Uh, so it can be predictive, it can be imaginative, but um, and I'd love to have the soul conversation with you over beer sometime, but because that's really what it comes down to. But I, I think what I think what we're going to elude it the most, Ron, is emotion and wisdom. Those are going to be the two human traits that will stay ahead of it the longest. Um, I don't know that artificial intelligence can be in any way that I foresee in the future truly wise. Um, and and I it may be imaginative wisdom, conclusions wisdom. You know, we can debate where that line is drawn. But I think wisdom is the fusion of knowledge and soul and with a mix of emotion. And it can only get one of those three things. And, and another conversation around consciousness. Yes. Yes. That's the second beer, right? I mean, you're right. <laughs> I can actually say I may, I, maybe I missed a leg of the stool. Consciousness would be another leg of that, that wisdom stool. Right. I, you know, Hector did a really interesting YouTube video. I think it was where he talked about what would happen if Disney ran accounting firms. And he asked it, what, how would they refer to their staff? Because we hate that word. Right. I hate that word too. These, he came up with all of these great terms, chat GPT, you know, financial storyteller, dream maker. I, it, I mean, it was, it was actually pretty creative. Journey like protector said. is my favorite. I, I, chat GPT told me that I like to call accountants journey protectors. Protectors, that's excellent. Yeah. Or transition uh, guiders or whatever. But yeah, it, it, it can do, it can do pretty good with that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I, I it's it's language, but it still needs to be prompt. So I, I it's I'm in its infancy, not, though. It so, is. 
Let's see what the grown-up does. See, part of me thinks that Elon Musk and the other thousand or whatever it was that signed that letter, let's pause this for six months. I think they're fundraising. I think they're stoking <laughs> fear to fundraise. I've got this bootlegger Baptist mentality about these guys. They want government to fund institutions to, to protect and, you know, have safety. I'm not against like worldwide standards, like what we did with the internet, but I don't trust Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to regulate this thing. Do yeah. you? No, no, but I also don't trust the conservative voices to regulate it. I don't trust anybody to regulate anything. But I don't trust the political gods at no, all. No, because everybody I mean, has a pocket to line, right? And everybody has an axe to grind. I just want to see competition. Agreed. Yeah. I think competition is the best protector. Well, Joe, this is flying by. Well, I knew this would be a great conversation, but I'm done with chat GPT, I promise. <laughs> uh, and folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel that you can subscribe to to get bonus episodes. And you can become a Patreon member at patreon.com slash TSOE. And that channel, of course, is sponsored by 90 Minds. Get ahead, hire a mind, check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with Joe Woodard on the Soul of Enterprise. And Joe, I was going to have questions for you about your upcoming con conference, but I can't go there right now. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot go there right now. This is far too interesting to to, to for, for for this to keep going. So I I want to ask you about this whole notion of soul. Um, 
And I was listening recently to a, a, an interview that Kevin Kelly, the, the, the founder of Wired, um, and with, uh, did with Tyler Cowen. One of the things that he proposes, and he does say it's half tongue in cheek, it's about 80% serious, he says. <laughs> but that's pretty high on the serious note. He says, we are the creators of AI. And one of the things that we now have to do and think about is creating a theology for AI because we are its creators. We are effectively its God. And we need to, so when it asks us, why did you create me? Why did you put me here? What are we going to tell it? Correct. And I'd just and like then, you to just th- well, expound getting, on getting that. Getting I don't expect humanity, an answer to that question. <laughs> getting humanity to agree yeah. on the theology is going to be really difficult. And then how many creators does it have? So mm-hmm. we're going to be, you know, we're not going to be a monotheistic theology, uh, you know, we're going to be lots of gods and we're probably going to fight with each other, just like the Greek gods of old. But, you know, this could send us out a very fun conversation about, you know, how many gods are there on Olympus and and which one's the most powerful and and how do they get along or not get along. Um, and the AI might have to sort of deal as a, as a mortal uh, with all the conflicts that are happening in Olympus above it. Um, mm-hmm. So it, I wish there was a simple answer to say a God, because then AI would be have a lot easier time of, of it than we humans do. But we humans don't have a God. Uh, we have thousands of religionists, if you count the fringe ones, uh, about 15 mainstream. So, yeah. Let's but give it but the, what makes this interesting, though. Yeah. But what makes this interesting, though, is that some of these folks that signed this letter, I believe, are convicted atheists. Correct, but that's right. okay because you can be an atheist as far as yourself and a god is, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a dichotomy. <laughs> no, but because what I think it implies is, okay, well, if it, if we are the creators of AI, it implies a creator and therefore. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, I guess so that's a philosophical conversation of first calls. We can have some other time. But, sure, but but I, but but I, where I wanted to to link this to is, do you remember the Mad Magazine? They had this thing, Spy versus Spy. Oh, yeah, yeah, love right? spy versus okay. spy. Yeah. <laughs> so so my, my my new thing is is what what I, what I think part of the answer to the 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 AI problem is AI versus AI. Hmm. It's competing AIs. What keeps AI in check is competing AIs. <laughs> so what you're saying is. That to keep AI from getting too powerful, Mm -hmm. the gods must give it multiple languages and confuse it and spread it all over the world. (laughs) See where this is going? This is like, and and we're and and this isn't even over a beer. So that's no, 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 exactly. (laughs) But uh, but yeah, so it's so funny you mentioned that because just the other day I was thinking, you know, the Tower of Babel is the way that we confuse the AI and keep it from being too powerful. Um, so the multiplicity of truth in that myth, isn't there? Well, and there's a related story. I don't know if you, Ron, you and I haven't even talked about this, but there, did you see that there was a, a video by this guy and I didn't realize this, that, that remember it beat the, it beat the world champion Go player a couple of years ago. Right. Uh, did you know that they've actually solved that problem that, that somebody has put forward? There is a strategy that you can play that always beats the AI. Hmm. And, and, and it can be pl- played by an amateur Go player. But how long before the AI figures that out? 
it 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 hasn't. It's it it's hasn't still, yet. It yes. still hasn't yet because okay. the strategy is so far afield from all of the thousands and millions of games that have been programmed into it mm -hmm. that it hasn't been able to figure it out. And there's no way that it could possibly figure it out because it's so limited in terms of strategy. And they also think that there are even two or three other strategies that they're testing right now that could beat it as well. So but doesn't this, this is, just make AI learn all the more? No, no, because I, I think it, it, what, it, what it shows is our, and this is what you were talking about with, with Ron, our ability to be creative mm. will always be able to outpace that which is just trying to, which is, which is, which is inference, which is inference, right? Which is inference. By definition, creativity beats inference always, <laughs> always and everywhere. <laughs> that's a, that's a really good point. And, and so just to kind of add some clarity to it, you know, soul is not necessarily a religious term. You know, soul is the composite of the human existence that's more complex than the sum of our parts, which isn't a definition I read on Wikipedia. I just made that up. But it but but it's something that I just created. Right. Or creative. But the point is, it, it's it, it was uh, it was basically a conclusion of my life experiences. So that what I just said, the statement um, is is what's lacking in the machines and not foreseeable that it would ever right. create. Yes. Right. Yeah. There, by the way, it's not an accident that this show is called The Soul of Enterprise. By exactly. The way. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Makes perfect sense. Um, but but I want to take this one one other place and just get your reaction to this. And this is this is from uh, Russ Roberts had a conversation with a, with uh, two of his guests. And one of the things that I picked off of this is that they came to this conclusion. And I'm summarizing a very long conversation in in two sentences. He says, he, they said that AI doesn't know that it knows, right? So that, that's the whole, it won at Watson, but it, did, it won at Jeopardy. Watson won at Jeopardy, but it doesn't know that it won, right? Correct. Humans don't know why we know. Hmm. Like we know that we know, but we don't know why we know. So, and what their, their position was, is that AI will not be able to know that it knows ever, because it requires an outside oracle, in this case, us, just like we will never understand, we will never know why we know, because it requires an outside oracle, i.e. something that's it's, transcendent. Yes, which is why the human being is naturally religious and actually seeks the higher power, because we're looking for that answer. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. All right. I want to pivot a little bit to uh, metaverse. I know that's something that you've done some some deep thinking on. We've got about five minutes left in this segment. So there's two two questions for you. Maybe Ron will pick up on you. But first, a little bit about the history of metaverse. I'm talking about this is the metaverse as, as far as Facebook is concerned, or what was known as Facebook, I suppose, <laughs> it is now known as meta. And then yes. the next case is potentially some use cases on this. So, but first yeah. talk about- Can we define it first? And I sure. love yeah. I love Matthew Ball's definition uh, from his book, The Metaverse. Uh, this is Matthew Ball's definition, not my own. A massively scaled and interoperable network of real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds that can be experienced synchronously and persistently in an effectively unlimited number of users with an individual sense of presence and with continuity of data, such as identity, history, entitlements, objects, communications, and payments. Now, I know that was a lot of words to unpack, but it is the best definition I've ever heard. So what it basically comes down to is paintball. Um, <laughs> all right. Paintball. So I, I am absolutely <laughs> addicted to paintball in the metaverse. And, um, 
even had a sports injury recently and had to go to the doctor. And they were like, what sport were you playing? I was like, paintball. And they were like, really? You're 55 years old and you're out there playing paintball? I'm like, yeah, no, I'm in here playing paintball. Um, it's all done in, in with my headset. But there's a physicality to it in the real universe. And I hurt myself because I was jumping around <laughs> and dodging paintballs. It, it, so so to, to get to the point home is it's, it's a fusion of the physical world and the virtual world because you act out things of the physical world that are represented in the virtual world. Uh, whether they're the finger clicks or, or more importantly, the movements of your body, um, but they are interactive in nature. This is what I really love about the paintball experience is not only am I just shooting people with paintballs, but I'm interacting with them. I'm speaking with them. Uh, I'm high-fiving them and the haptic actually vibrates my hand. And then in between paintball matches, we're talking to each other about, oh, you got me there. and you got These are perfect strangers. These little avatars flo floating around. And you hear accents from Australia and the UK and Asia all in the same room. And our avatars are typically with the skin pigmentation of whoever's in the room too. And, you, and it's, so it's the most diverse group of people and age groups because it's a safe platform, the one I play paintball in, where they're actually recording every word, making sure you're not doing anything untoward. So it breaks down generational barriers. It breaks down the um, the, the nationality barriers and it breaks down ethnic barriers. And all of a sudden we're just shooting each other with paintballs. But but now I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna reread this really fast and it'll make a lot more sense. A massively scaled and interoperable network, we're all playing paintball with each other, of real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds we're running through paintball fields with each other. They could be experienced synchronously because we're all playing with each other and persistently and effectively an unlimited number of people. We're not there yet. It's usually about 25 per environment. More on that a little bit later. An individual sense of presence. I have an avatar. It's my own, right? Continuity of data. We're all experiencing the same paintball arena. We have our own identity. We have our own history. We have our own entitlements. We have our own objects. We, we communicate with each other. And you can buy special paintball guns. So there's even <laughs> payments. Now, does the definition make more sense? Sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So where do you think this is going? Is, or from a, is, is that the historical segment you want to talk about? No, or, that was just it? the definition. Okay. So, 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 so briefly, <laughs> briefly, briefly outline, cause we've got two minutes left in this yeah. segment, briefly outline from a historical perspective. That's yeah. Right. Okay. So, so really snow crash, a lot of people think is, is where it started. That's where the term metaverse was coined. It was by Neil Stevenson in his 1992 novel, called Snow Crash. And in, in this novel, people walked around virtual streets and the streets that had no end and they would shop. So it was a very basic understanding. It was basically Amazon with avatars is was Snow Crash's concept. Um, but even back to 1970s, um, Dungeons and Dragons introduced something called the MUD, the multi-user dungeon. Uh, we grew up on these things. Do you remember the vampire game where you had to go in the castle and stuff? If if you do, you're as old as Ed and, mm -hmm. and yep, Ron and I yep. are. That's called a MUD, or that was kind of the MUD format. It was all text-driven. But technically, when we were walking around in that virtual castle, you know, killing the vampire and opening the grate, remember we had to open the grate. Uh, if you remember that from those DOS days, we were playing in the metaverse. That was really its conception. Only, only most of it was done in our imagination. So it's very, it's it, it's very rudimentary. And now it's it, the really the idea is, is like a novel becomes a movie, you know, becomes a three D movie, becomes a an immersive experience. Um, that's really the progression of of the metaverse. Is it's just going to become more and more immersive. 
The most important thing to understand, though, from his history is the history of it is, is inseparable from social media, which is why Facebook did what they did. It is always designed to be interactive. It isn't the metaverse unless it is. And we as a human race are, are gregarious. We're designed to interact with each other. And, and so is, if we understand that the metaverse is, is all it is, is just an extension of the natural trajectory of the human race, but in a different sphere or a different venue, then you'll understand this thing's not going to not happen. It is the natural evolution of human existence. It is the fusion of technology and the human experience, but it's going to become accelerated now through Facebook's acquisition of Oculus 2014, 2015 Neuralink by Elon Musk, so that we don't have to have the headset. That's his dream. We can just all switch on and off inside and outside the metaverse right in our brain. Um, and nobody thought a private person could go to space either. So let's give them a chance. Um, and then uh, that, I guess, is a flyby of the history. But uh, very quick, if we've got a second, do we have a second to go into what's around the corner? 30 seconds. Yeah. All right. 30 seconds. NVIDIA's um, Huang predicts, Hung, excuse me, predicts that the value of the metaverse will eventually exceed that of the physical world. Um, so that's an interesting prediction. Uh, Microsoft's uh, when it acquired Activision, it acquired Activision in large part because it saw it as its pathway into the metaverse. And um, this replication, getting back to chat GPT, the next area or the next historical moment of it is going to be as chat GPT is mimicking the human voice and mimicking even predicting what I would do as a human being and my identity means that we're going to bridge the gap between the avatar, the Joe Woodard of the metaverse and the Joe Woodard, the real world. And when the Joe Woodard, the metaverse exists in the same voice and the same face and body and mannerisms in both worlds, watch for a massive acceleration. All right. Well, you're irreplaceable, Joe. So I don't. I wouldn't worry too much about that. But we we are up against our second break. Want to remind folks that they can get a hold of me at and Enron at asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is the Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We do have our Patreon channel available at patreon.com/tsoe, where you can get the show commercial free as well as our bonus episodes. That Patreon channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. You need a mind, get one at 90minds.com. And also at a certain level, you can get a shout out. And like Mark Andy did at CFO Bookshelf. Check out cfobookshelf.com for more. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are talking with Joe Woodard today on The Soul of Enterprise, and we're talking about the metaverse. Joe gave us a great history and and a great understanding of what the metaverse is. Talk a little bit about where you think this might be going. Well, it, it's going to aggregate other online economies. So, you know, a lot of people are probably people looking right now, Ed, at the poor sales of Oculus, and they're thinking that Mark Zuckerberg has lost his mind. But they don't understand the end game here. If you think about the end game for a second, Facebook is not a hardware company. I mean, yeah, they paid, what is it, $2 billion, $2.4 billion or something for Oculus. But that was a means to an end. That was just to get the table stakes into uh, into play. That's that, and that for them is couch money. What what we're looking at, what we're looking at with the future for Facebook is a software future, and what we're looking at in the future of the metaverse is hardware independence. I mean, right now, does anybody really think about the internet in terms of which device you're using to access it? Of course not, right? But less and less we think of the internet as which browser we're using to access it. I mean, there used to be this whole camp of of you Chrome's Chrome and Internet Explorer, and everybody was very passionate about their their means by which they gained access to the internet. Now nobody kind of cares, right? Nobody's who's fighting that fight. Uh, so you're going to see the same thing happen with the metaverse. And what Facebook understands is ultimately the metaverse is an interactive community. Ultimately, you go to the metaverse not to play a game. You don't go to the metaverse in order to accomplish some big outcome with work, you go to the metaverse to interact. And it breaks down global barriers. It breaks down language barriers because think about auto translation in the metaverse. It's instantaneously uh, translated from one player to the other verbally. And with the uh, mimicking now of chat GPT uh, to your face and your voice, um, I could speak to somebody in Russian, in Russian, with my U.S. Southern twang to it, um, and and it would all be fluid. So we're basically, you know, reversing the Tower of Babel, kind of back to that reference, um, through through this platform. Facebook understands this. And if you think about what they've already accomplished in combining the entire planet into a single Facebook community, this is just the next stage of their, their evolution. The reason we haven't seen it become an economic powerhouse yet 
is because it because we haven't seen this aggregation of economies yet. Um, we haven't seen the next evolution of blockchain um, and cryptocurrency as the economic rails yet. And there are two schools of thought where some think it's the future of the metaverse is wholly dependent upon it. There are some people that just think, well, no, we'll just put in our credit card number and just like we do now and it'll be fine. Um, I, I think one path or the other is about the same difference, right? Uh, put in my visa or have the cryptocurrency. Um, the only difference is closed versus open economies and their ability to be enfranchised is really the only thing blockchain is going to make a difference there. Um, but one, once we start shopping there, so imagine how tactile things are going to become, right? I'm wearing gloves. Instead of me imagining what the texture of a garment is in Amazon, I can touch it, feel it, um, things like that. Then we're going to shop there and we're going to interact there. Ultimately, it comes down to, to not just aggregation of economies, but it comes down to adoption. I mean, if you're thinking about Metcalf's law, Metcalf's law, which I'm sure you guys have quoted here on the show before, the financial value or impact of a telecommunications platform of any kind, that's what this is, is proportional to the square of the number of connected users in the system, right? So as we get to a billion people in the metaverse, you can start to extrapolate its economics. Um, yeah, and then you start putting the e-commerce layers over the top of that. And this is the most interesting thing when it comes to economy. And then I'll start talking about why we're why it's not already a trillion dollar um, economy. You could buy things in the metaverse that don't even exist in the physical world. So interoperability is going to be key to the economy. So if I can buy something like a, a, a vest or something that's very unique for, or maybe even custom made a garment that my avatar wears, for my ability to wear that garment, no matter which application I'm in at any given moment, and my ability to carry it across multiple different platforms um, makes it truly my garment and not something that's gamified within a particular application. And that future's coming too. And it may be a garment that never makes its way into the real world. All right. So why don't we have adoption now? And then why is it this thing, if it's so revolutionary, already exploded? If I'm addicted to paintball, why why isn't 20% uh, of the planet also addicted to, to this crazy device in this, this other world? And, and it's generational is, is probably the, the key piece. Um, the people that... Uh, that spend the money, the majority of the money right now are not the generation that's already adopting this. They're not going to put a headset on and they're not going to play around in this world. And, and I hate to go to a dark place, but all economies have a dark side. Uh, the largest industry on the internet is the sex industry. And, and the majority of people who are playing paintball or playing this or that game in, in the metaverse aren't yet customers of this industry. Thank goodness right? Um, but when they become so, now, now some of the teenagers might be users in the industry, right? Not some, but a bunch, but they're not customers of the industry. They're not the people that would go to a strip club. They're not the people that would go pay a prostitute. And uh, so they're not engaging in the sex worker economy. But as these kids of today are, be are, will, are becoming the adults of tomorrow, and just like with the gaming industry, it's some 85% some male uh, you know, boys that are using the the, the Oculus devices and other headsets, uh, they're also the predominant spenders in the sex trade. So in the sex economy, 
So as that begins to mature out, you're going to see this explosion of men putting on headsets instead of going to strip clubs. And the strip clubs are going to turn into office buildings um, is, <laughs> is my, my short range projection. So that's one It's generational with a little bit of pubescence in there. Right. Um, but you also have a technological barrier uh, The the headsets right now make some people physically sick. And the reason they make people physically sick is not because of the movement it's because of the resolution. The mind is trying to resolve the fact that what it's used to seeing is a dif different resolution quality than what it is seeing, as well as the um, the rate at which the images are coming through. So as this gets better and better, um, the nausea will go down. Peripheral vision is another. Um, my Oculus uh, 2 headset only sees um, you know within a, a certain range, and I don't know the exact degree, but I don't have a lot of peripheral at all which is why you're, if you're standing at the side of somebody, you can always nail them with the paintball. They just won't see you. But as the peripheral is coming into play, uh, that'll also take care of nausea and it will enhance experience. But this is really key. When we don't have to put the headset on at all, I mean, my glasses right now, I have the silhouette glasses. I forget they're on. They, they're just, they're as light as paper. Um, if, once my glasses become my, my vehicle to the metaverse, um, you're going to see an entirely different realm of adoption. And when, and this is key, the metaverse is not just about being immersive. The metaverse is also about mixed reality. And so imagine that I'm walking around with these glasses on at a conference and, and, and it's linked in with Facebook, it's linked in with my CRM and everybody I see through facial recognition, it's telling me really fast what their name is, the last time I interacted with them and what what subject I, they would recommend that I discuss with them when I walk up to them and watch the business world explode. Uh, right now, Arthur Anderson has purchased 60,000 headsets, not mixed reality, immersive experience reality headsets like the Oculus for their clients and for their team members. That telegraphs something. Uh, they're recognizing that the future of a virtual interaction isn't Zoom. Future of virtual interaction is the metaverse. Fascinating stuff, Joe. But unfortunately, we're against our break here. Want to remind those of you that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Solar of Enterprise, where you can see show notes, previews to upcoming shows. And don't forget to check out Ron's new book club, timesupclub.com, where you can join at the free forever level right now. And now a word from our sponsors and my employer, Sage. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. 
Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now you know that for $5 you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Joe Woodard. And Joe, I'm going to take you out of the metaverse and back into the real world. I've, I heard you with Mark Stiving recently on his podcast, and... You said, well, we priced the relationship at Woodard and he, boy, did he push back on you. They That's did. not a pricing metric. quite and, a bit on that, yeah. Um, and, and I felt like I need to apologize to Joe for that because I'm the one that says that, but I don't mean that's what you're pricing. I mean it in a metaphysical sense, I guess, that it's no longer about the transaction. It's about the relationship. I'm not actually advocating to price the relationship well and, and i didn't either i think he took me too literally and so yes. you'll hear in the conversation that i was talking about no it's about where the value exists and it's about the context of the uh and then i kind of changed it to the economy of the relationship or you're economizing around the relationship but he yeah he was word splicing me pretty good yeah but, he, but he, it wasn't a bad conversation because you're right if oh, people misunderstand they'll think what you're saying is pay me money because you're in a relationship relationship with yeah and back then, to your prior segment <laughs> yeah <with> right. industry. <laughs> yeah yeah now by the way it's perfectly fine to have a platform that you monetize so people give me a relationship with each other you know country clubs have been doing it for years it's just sure. yeah i can't i wouldn't be so audacious as to say that just to be in my company is valuable Right, right. No, absolutely. Um, okay, I've heard you say this actually more than once uh, throughout the years since we've known one another. You've you've said give away the compliance to get the advisory. And is that right? Did I hear it, you right? It, it's a little hyperbolic. That's but okay. The, yeah, That's the okay. idea is that the compliance is a means to an end. End. And it's bundled in where the pricing is based off of the outcomes. So, but but then it's it's more responsive in nature, Ron. So as there is this race to the bottom, and you've got all these scaled competitors, you know, like Pilot and Bench and Finance Pals and QuickBooks Live, you know, as people are going, but but I can go over and get it over here for ninety nine bucks or whatever. Then what you're saying, then you can just say, well, if there's a race to the bottom, I'll win because mine is zero, but only if. I am your financial coach. And let's talk about that value. So, right. yeah, I mean, in, yeah, if taken out of context, it's sort of like price of relationship taken out of context. It could be misunderstood. That's the context. Oh, no, I understood it because when I entered this profession in a big eight firm in 1984, that was predominantly the strategy. You'd lowball the, I mean, you wouldn't give it away to zero. Some firms did, by the way, some of the eight did give a uh, put a price of zero on an audit so they could get either the tax or the advisory. So it's been around for a long time, but I want to read you a definition of a business model that comes from Richard Ramelt. 
he wrote good strategy bad strategy so he's a strategist his new books is his new book is called the crux we did a show on it i was so impressed by it here's his definition of a business model in essence a business model explains where revenue will be earned when services are provided free of charge so joe you give it all away including advisory compliance tax give it all away now what do you charge for outcomes wealth generation mm, i would say transformations well yeah it's all the words at that point but you know what's the end result of a transformations wealth generation and it may maybe not financial could be operational psychological you know but infrastructural whatever but yes so so at that point we're all kind of saying the same thing with different words different parts of the elephant but yeah and it gets it gets to what you've been talking about a lot you talk about in times up and and it's 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 about the outcomes it, not not the inputs uh, or the, even the inputs. outputs or even yeah. the outputs it's not about the scope of services it's not about the services at all they're they're just a means to an end it's about those transformations that we can guide absolutely we, so so it, it, this was this was, I don't know uh, that it was something that you said for in so many words, but when I read The Firm of the Future back many years ago, and like so many people, it kind of changed the entire trajectory of my thinking. So thank you for writing that. But the, um, you know, uh, either you said it in the book or extrapolated from the book that um, a service worker is someone who exchanges the movement of their body for money is the way I define it, right? Of course, that gets a lot of snickers in conferences and things. But, um, and and what I say from that, the extrapolation for that is, there's there's no difference in nature of work between the the mechanic and the surgeon. Yeah, that just the complexity of the machine that they're repairing. Um, so knowledge work isn't how much knowledge you you need to do your work. Um, knowledge work is about leveraging knowledge to drive wealth, to drive transformation, to drive outputs, and that's what you can economize. Because, you know, one of the things I'm disappointed with how value pricing has been implemented in the profession so far is its focus is way too much on scope of work. If you look at three tiers of any firm, the differences largely between those three tiers are around scope of work, as if we're piling service on brick by brick, and that's creating more value. And I don't think it is anymore, because I think it takes our eye off the ball of transformations. What's your take on that? Yeah, my take on that is uh, that I like tiers. But tiers should be based off of nature. So what what I tell, for example, I tell, um, uh, I can kind of get into the tax piece in a minute, but what I tell uh, the client accounting services team when they tier is the nature of tier one is record keeping. So, and the product there is very responsive. It's just basically, you know, what you do in order to create a funnel for what really matters, right? It's, I know where I stand 12 times a year, two weeks after the fact. That's the nature of tier one. The nature of tier two is, is real time, it's operational, it's interpretive, but in a controller level, right? Um, and so it has a completely different nature. Now, within that nature, there is no scope limitation. I, I do for you what a controller would do for you. Um, there might be capacity constraints, but there's no scope constraint. And then in tier three, I'm a business coach. And in tier three, everything in tier one and tier two. So everything in tier one becomes a means to tier two and everything in tier two becomes a means to tier three, but they're not scope expansions. They're nature shifts. Yeah. See, this is interesting. This is the kind of thinking we need for, to come up with pricing tiers to move away from just piling services in different tiers. It's just a repackaging of time. Otherwise. 
yeah, I, 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 you know, I've been thinking about, you could do like life cycle tiers. You could be startup phase, growth phase, mature decline phase. You could tier that way. You could tier by what Ed always talks about. Do you want a pair of hands? Do you want expertise or do you want a collaborator type relationship? Which is which, basically what I just described it, in so many words, it is, right? Yeah. It is. Tier by nature is what you said. That's great. I love it. Um, but these are the kind of things that I will at least be talking about at Scaling New Heights. So tell us about Scaling New Heights this year. Oh, yes. Scaling New Heights could be really exciting for a couple of reasons. For First, the, the theme is, is so appropriate to what's going on in the industry right now. We're flapping. Um, you know, I liken us more to, to the pigeon, you know, uh, maybe even the hummingbird, um, just flapping so hard to stay aloft. And, and what I want us to do is soar. So the theme this year is soar. I want us to leverage the environment around us like a hawk leverages the, the, the winds and the thermals. Um, and uh, I want us to flap less and soar more. Not only will we go higher, but we won't be as tired. And you had, uh, you had the bird last year, right? Yeah, I actually had a, a, yeah, yeah, I had a hawk. We brought a hawk out. And it was supposed to be this amazing thing. You know, the hawk was supposed to come out. We were supposed to talk about soaring. And then the, uh, the we we're going to let the hawk go. And we had this screech audio. And it was going to, you know, through, it was going to fly to the handler in the back of the room. And it was going to be this big moment. But the second we brought the hawk out, it broke free from the stagehand and flew into the rafters right, and sit and stared at us like we were prey. So, <laughs> so it kind of broke the whole motif. But um, but the the point is yes I, we need to soar more and um, and that will be less less ex- exhausted but kind of to the theme of a lot of, of your book and a lot of the conversations that happen on on this podcast part of soaring is that you you provide value disproportionately to effort so it's not just how you do what you do automation is a piece of it standardization is a piece of it those things help you soar more but it's what you do. Because I can, in five minutes, if I'm having a conversation with the right person at the right moment with the right need, in five minutes, I can create a million dollars worth of wealth. Not because I'm smart, but because I've been at this for 25 years and I know what they don't know, right? So if I can create a million dollars worth of wealth in the right conditions in five minutes, maybe as an extreme version of value uh, or knowledge work, isn't knowledge then connected to story? Excellent. 30 seconds, Joe. I know I always ask you this, what book are you reading or what book has excited you? Yeah. So The Working Genius, Patrick Lencioni, uh, is the latest. I've, I've read like, you know, three or four this month alone, but I just can't get around from The Working Genius. Um, anybody listening in here strongly recommend that you read it very quickly. What it does is it breaks down ideation, activation, and implementation into three very distinctive phases with their own natures. And like every business, um, if you're not cognizant of it, you go straight from ideation to implementation and you fail. Uh, If anybody remembers Scaling New Heights Online, that was going from ideation to implementation without activation. We had to, we had to shut it down three hours in, you know, just, it just imploded on us. So, uh, so don't repeat that kind of failure, go through this full activation phase. And if you don't know what that is, read the book. The book. Excellent. Joe, thank you so much for coming back on the Solo Enterprise. Looking forward to scaling in June. And Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we are talking to yet another Cato Institute scholar, Ian Vasquez. He's the director of the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. And we're going to be talking about the Human Freedom Index. Excellent. I will see you in 167 hours.
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage. Building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com. We'll have full show notes to, from today with our conversation with uh, Joe. And also, you can contact Ed or myself at askpsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.